Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. Uh, welcome, person who is listening to us. We're talking exclusively to you, mm-hmm. and you are listening to Wire Dads. What are we talking about today? We're talking about Citizen Ruth. That's right. Alexander Payne's first movie, and I would say Laura Dern's, well, you can't say her best movie. There's so many best Laura Dern movies. Mm-hmm. It's one of Laura Dern's best movies. Laura Dern has several career peaks, however you slice it, and this is just one of them. <laughs> Absolutely. Laura Dern has a peak like every three years. Yeah. And this was uh, the post-Jurassic Park peak. <laughs> Yeah, and this is a movie that is very dear to my heart, and we got to bring back our first guest, Candace Opper, to talk about this movie, and I think Candace talking about film is really a joy to experience also, and I was happy to do that. Yeah, I was I was happy as well, and we're going to talk a bit about what Candace has recently brought into the world in a couple minutes. You talk about why this movie was appealing to you to discuss in an episode, but we didn't really talk about the historical moment slash milestone. Why did you want to talk about this in late January? Yeah, I originally pitched this idea to you as something that could coincide with the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which is January 22nd, 1973. And that's sitting because this is a movie that, as much as it is about a woman named Ruth, it's also about the abortion debate. Mm-hmm. I do want to say for people who have to wait quite a while for us to establish this, that I believe you and I are ardently pro-choice people. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I just want to make sure that it's clear up front. That we're not coming to this from an agnostic perspective. Yeah. So are you con- are you concerned about that because this movie makes mincemeat of absolutely all of its characters? No, but I'm concerned about that because I don't think it's immediately clear mm. coming from us. We honor the fact that I think one of the reasons that this movie is funny and probably <laughs> a huge reason it didn't do well mm-hmm. <laughs> is that, as you said, it makes men's me of sort of all of the people portrayed. But I just want it to be clear that, you know, because we don't get around to it until like an hour into the conversation right. that we're on the uh, we're on the pro-choice side of this. I would even call myself pro-abortion because I think... I think abortion, it's a complicated gift, but it is a gift and it is a medical advance that liberates women and saves people's lives. Yeah, I I agree with that entirely. And so, yeah, if you're listening to this and you're like, are these people sitting on the fence about this? We are not. I mean, I feel as if what makes the movie, again, what makes it so good and what makes it so, you know, I, I would imagine the subject matter alone would make people highly reluctant to market this in any real way, regardless of how it's approached. Also, like this is a movie about a character who is herself. She is is trying to survive and that's her story. And I guess it also seems relevant to talk about a movie that is about politics, but is really about politics from the perspective of someone who has suddenly been snatched up and used as a pawn by political actors and who the entire time is sort of whipsawing between different positions entirely because she's trying to just get the best deal for herself and not in a way that is greedy or that is unjustified. And you are a person who a lot of people know for looking at and dissecting media narratives mm-hmm. and how people remember people in the media narrative. And like in that way, like this reminds me of the Terry Schiavo case, you know, that it's like, yeah, you know, Ruth as a name 
is someone who in this universe would be retrospectively remembered just as a name and as one narrative or another assigned to her, but nothing about her would be remembered at all. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of watching that happen in real time in this movie and we're watching the reasons that that's happening and the reasons that different narratives take shape. Mm -hmm. So I I really appreciate it from that perspective in in a big way. We had our friend Candace Hopper on the show, and I'd love for you to talk about what Candace has done recently and uh, why we we're eager to have her back. Yeah, Candace has just published a book called Certain and Impossible Events. I am extremely excited about it. She has been working on it for a long time. I have been reading occasional drafts of it for a long time. It's been just a meaningful part of my life to be able to get to observe part of her creative process because this is a project that she has allowed to shape her life and be shaped by her life and now is bringing into the world a book that I'm really excited for people to experience. And specifically, it's it's a coming-of-age book. It's about suicide and the world of suicidology. Really, to me, I guess what what makes this book fit the themes of this whole show is that the engine of it all is having this radical empathy for your younger self, like your 13-year-old self, and to be able to come back and tell with some compassion that perspective and maturity allows just like what was truly important and seemed like the most important questions to be asked to a group of young teenagers and just caring about and taking seriously those kids. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting thing to say. Like, I feel like a lot of the work that people end up doing or a lot of the stuff that we hear back from listeners is about, you know, reconciling stuff now as an adult. Mm-hmm. And it's rare that you hear people talk about engaging with or making peace or being kind to our younger self as well. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And I feel as if that is one of the things that really holds us back. Our our younger version of ourselves is one of the hardest people to empathize with. And I think that, you know, can get in the way when we're raising our children, which I know we've talked about Mm. with regards to dads as well, with regards to being dad, especially. Yeah. Candace is the anti-being dad. She is the rice mom. (laughs) Okay, we're going to do something a little different than we normally do. We have an excerpt from Candace's book that she is going to read to us. And just so you know, she, I think, is against the crass promotional thing, but I am very for it. And so I was like, Candace, come read your book on our show on this episode that it has nothing to do with. I don't care. Do it. Do it. And so she did. All right, let's hear Candace and then we will jump into Citizen Ruth. Evidence that your actions had been influenced by Kurt Cobain came to us from Jill, who'd heard it at your funeral. She told me that before you did it, you had stuffed your pockets with magazine articles about Kurt's suicide. I guess maybe he wanted to be like him, she said. All the attention. That last part sounded like it had originally come from the mouth of an adult attempting to neatly compartmentalize your motive. From Jill down, these rumors split, fragmented, reproduced. One source had you surrounded by Nirvana CDs in their scratched plastic cases. Another had both CDs and whole magazines. A third had Nirvana videos playing on a television in the background. An extraordinary blankness separated my idea of you from the image of your lifeless body flanked by Nirvana accoutrement. 
I had watched you with Bird of Prey focus, and I cannot be sure I even knew you liked Nirvana. I vaguely remember you owning a t-shirt with the album artwork from their Sliver single, the front of which displayed a neon anatomical figure boxed into a bright blue square, but so did half the other boys who had discovered MTV. For all the trivial details I had collected about your existence, I managed to miss the one that allegedly led you to your own end. The current theory gave us something to grab onto, to assign responsibility in the absence of reason. I wanted to reject it for oversimplifying your motivations, but I have to admit, it was easier to think you'd gotten swept up in some cultural phenomenon, the death of Kurt Cobain and the fall of his disciples, of which I had reason to assume there were more, and perhaps even many, pulling the covers off other unmemorable towns across America. This theory divorced you from the violence of your choices, as though some greater equation had allotted for a quota of Kurt Cobain copycat casualties, and you just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. The more I thought about it this way, the more your actions seemed entirely external, environmental, arbitrary, a lightning strike of a death. What I still cannot explain is the sensation that it had to be someone, that a suicide had seemed certain, sacrificial even. Hero falls, admirers get pulled down by the force of his falling. The greater the hero, the greater the force, perhaps. A sociologist might call this copycat suicide. A physicist might call it kinetic energy. Our parents called it a tragedy, and we called it fucked up or obvious or unbelievable, even when calling it anything seemed pointless, like waking from a vivid dream and trying to capture its vividness in a diary. What's the matter? Are you fucking people deaf? I said I wanted abortion! This is the devil. Do you hear me? You have got the devil inside you! Ruth, you listen to me! Don't you do it! What if I'd aborted you? been like sisters sisters you don't know what it means to be a sister because i'm a citizen and i got my rights to um pick and you're you're just trying to and um i'm a woman and my body belongs to me hello sarah marshall Hello, Alex Steed. <laughs> we are talking about Citizen Ruth today, and I'm very excited to do so. And who are we talking about that with? We are talking with Candace Opper, who was our first ever guest on this podcast. Yay. Hello, Candace. Hi, Alex and Sarah. Thank you for having me again. Thank you so much for being here. How have you been since we last talked? Uh, in the last time we talked, we talked about uh, another movie that had an abortion focus, Dirty Dancing. You know, that's really funny. I did not make that connection <laughs> before you said that, but here we are. Um, I guess I'm like the resident abortion guest. Yeah, you figure you want to hang and talk about choice in film. Yeah, absolutely. You can be whatever kind of guest you want, but that did happen. <laughs> It's true. Could just be a coincidence, but I'm happy to be here. Candace, what have you been up to since the last time we talked with you? Well, I just had a book come out, my first book. So that's been very exciting and very busy. What is your book called, Candace? My book is called Certain and Impossible Events. And it just came out from a small press called Corey Press in Arizona. And 
It is about my sort of longtime fixation on the suicide of a boy I went to middle school with who killed himself a week after Kurt Cobain. So many years later, as an adult, I, I started researching suicide and ended up writing this book that sort of weaves together uh, my research about how we grapple with suicide as a culture, but also my personal experience losing this friend many years ago. You were such a suitable guest for this movie in particular, not because of the subject matter, but because this movie is very much of the mid 90s, mm. which is a time I associate you with, Candace. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very accurate association. I do consider myself sort of a, a specialist in the early 90s. You're a cultural archaeologist of my favorite piece of the 90s. <laughs> Happy to be that. Candace, do you know about the legendary zine that Alex wrote where it was about mosh pits? Oh my gosh. And people being worried about kids in mosh pits. And as I recall, Alex, you wrote, my name is Alex Steed, and I am a kid. <laughs> and then you said stuff about going to Mosh, but I will forever love that so much. I also wrote, Sarah, in a way that I haven't thought about in the associations until just now. And I, I don't, I only have one copy of this specific zine that is in storage in Nashville. Mm -hmm. But I also wrote about Britney Spears being a maligned woman. Oh, no way. Yeah, of course he did. Because that's the most punk thing you can possibly do. <laughs> it was definitely very punk at that time. Britney Spears was widely hated. Yeah, I was I was confused about why people were angry at her and not what appeared to me to be like an indentured servitude that is being a pop musician at 15 years old. Because people are simps. <laughs> Sarah, why are we talking about Citizen Ruth? So, yeah, a few reasons. I wanted to talk about this movie with Candace because I know that we watched it together when we both lived in Portland. And I was thinking that maybe you were going to say it makes sense to have Candace on because she's written a book that is, a, among other things, about suicide itself and about our attempts within American culture to talk about suicide and I feel like her ability to talk about issues that often go untalked about in America, that people, when they do engage with, tend to engage with pretty bluntly or squeamishly. She really gets in there in this book and her work generally and like just sort of calmly spends time like going through the hoarder attic of our American terror of things like suicide. And also, I think she's capable of doing that with abortion, which is perhaps an equally fraught issue for Americans. Well, I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'll be great. Just do your thing. <laughs> and also, I know that, that you like this movie, and I know that we both love Laura Dern, and I just, I think she is fantastic in this movie. And I really like how our slate of January movies is a slate of movies that all have interesting and very centered heroines. You know, not all of the Saw movies, but, you know, there, there's a lot of Amanda stuff. We have Claudia as a central figure in Magnolia. We're going to talk about Marge and Fargo. And here we have a movie that is really built directly around a woman and in a way that, to me, makes her very lovable and also very unlikable. <laughs> it's this amazing, gross museum of masculinity through being a movie directly about, about a heroine about motherhood and about reproductive rights. Right, totally. And, and about who is allowed to do what and for what reason. Yeah. That to me was the most interesting through line of 
this movie, which I haven't seen in such a long time. And I was, I've watched it twice in the past 48 hours. That sounds great. Yeah. Oh my God. I loved it the first time or the first revisit and loved it again. And, and, and I had said to you before I jumped into it the first time that I remember loving Ruth, but not liking her very much. And I actually found that not to be true this time. I love Ruth and I like Mm -hmm. her quite a lot. I like her brazen unlikability in a lot of ways, but I, I like that she, through all of the processes she goes through is kind of tossed around, driven mad, driven even maybe a little crazier than she already is by the fact that everyone around her expects her to not only do something, but to do something for exactly the reasons they want her to do it. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be an interesting disconnect and the connection to all the dad stuff that we tend to talk about, which is, you know, we talked about this with Saw. Jigsaw, you can do everything that Jigsaw wants you to do, but if you're not doing it for exactly the reasons he wants you to Mm -hmm. do it, you're inevitably going to disappoint him. And that describes a lot of people in this movie too. Totally. Wow. I feel like my perspective on this movie has changed so much now that I'm a parent. I guess I want to tell you first, like the context in which I initially saw this movie, which was pretty amazing. It was in a, um, a film class. I was a film student in undergrad and this would have been probably like 2002 or 2003. And I took this film class called Bad Behavior. Hmm. The whole point of this class was to just watch films that were basically offensive to some group of people. And this one just committed to being offensive to everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I actually think this maybe was the first one we watched in the class as like an introduction to the class. I think we also watched Pink Flamingos, which is, Mm. you know, for for obvious reasons. But then we ended up watching Toy Story, I think, as well, and Hmm. talking about how... That was offensive to people who are like anti-capitalist. So (laughs) that was my introduction to Citizen Ruth. And I I remember talking about in the context of this class about how the film presents all these different uh, it's like pitting these two camps of people pro-life and pro-choice against each other, but not really taking a side on it. And it's interesting, like, I feel like I didn't really think about Ruth's perspective a whole lot because we talked about it more in like the social context or what it was saying about these two groups of people. But watching it now as a mom, it strikes me how childlike Ruth is. Oh, yeah. Mm. Laura Dern plays that character like a child down to every like gesture that she makes and her responses to everything. And I think my initial sort of thoughts on Ruth were that she was just a kind of like undereducated adult but now like the way that she's portrayed is so childlike and that really struck me this time around can you talk about like yeah what moments stick out for you I've seen this movie many times and it was maybe after the first handful that I was like oh like Laura Dern just feels like this gigantic gangly 11 year old who somehow just is in the adult world with no one to take care of her and seems much younger at times too yeah, definitely. I think the the first moment I noticed was when she was in the courtroom and the judge, you know, is like really berating yeah. her and she's standing there. Like when you look at her, she's standing there sort of holding that comb and she seems she's just sort of withdrawn. And then 
you know, he's asking her all these questions like, do you know how many times you've been arrested for, I can't even remember the, the technical term. Hazardous vapor inhalation, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hazardous vapor inhalation. You know, at one point she's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. And it was like <laughs> the way she said sorry. It's just like, it is like a 10 year old. You were saying this, Candace, earlier about how when you first watched it, you were watching it and probably in the context of that class, looking at what the movie was saying about kind of like the positions and the sides. And Alexander Payne, who directed the movie and and wrote the movie, has said a lot about the same that like this isn't about Ruth necessarily or her plight. This is about the zealous nature with which people approach these sides and use them as kind of a cultivation of their meaning and project their neuroses onto these various issues and to the adoption of these issues. And I think that like the text of this movie doesn't care about Ruth. Mm. And if Laura Dern wasn't Ruth, Laura Dern is like 75% of this movie to me. Like she's the magic in this movie. She creates such an extraordinary, lovable character that, if you just take the words of this film, I don't think was there on paper. Mm. She is at best a 25-year-old, 11-year-old in this movie for reasons that we hear kind of implied throughout. Like we know for a fact that she was stunted by her upbringing. We know for a fact that she was sexually abused. We know that like a lot of things in her life that led her to this moment aren't great and it doesn't really linger on that. But like we are dealing with a adult that's in suspended animation as a child. Yeah. I mean, something we talked about with Amanda in the Saw series is like all she needs. This is how you put it, Alex. All she needs is for someone to love her. And just the person who comes along who loves her has an agenda with which to make her a serial killer, Mm. but in a philosophical kind of way. And this is, I think, actually a similar premise. She is picked up by these essentially dueling parental figures each of whom is interested in using her for their own political agenda. You know, she's a character whose tragedy is that, like, she really just needs care without agenda, but she can't find it. And so you end up accepting the substitute, and then things get get real wacky. Sir, can you explain, just quickly, give an overview of the plot of this movie? Yes. So Citizen Ruth opens with Laura Dern playing Ruth Stoops, who is engaging in some survival sex in order to have a place to stay. And then the guy immediately throws her out and then throws out and breaks her TV. And so she's fucked. She goes, beats up his car, finds some money, and goes to get some patio sealant to inhale and then gets arrested for public intoxication or something like that by these two cops who just sort of are wandering through the whole movie, Bundy and Iverson. This whole movie is set in Nebraska. And one of the other things I love about it is that it shows in America that is like very recognizable to me, but you very rarely see in movies. Mm. Like this feels like Nebraska, Nebraska. It's not like Hollywood, Nebraska. It just is like, yep, that's Martian, <laughs> Nebraska. <laughs> it's a lot of like hanging out behind bowling alleys. And so she gets arrested. She gets taken into jail. While she's processed, they give her an exam and inform her that she's pregnant. And after she gets chewed out by the judge, she tells her that the city attorney basically wants to try out this experimental punishment on her, which is charging her with, I believe, fetal endangerment. And then after she's threatened with that, which is a more significant charge than she's ever faced before, 
We get the sense that it's pretty routine for her to be in and out of jail, but this is like the stakes have suddenly been raised. And so after all that, the judge kind of calls her into his chambers while she's being led past and is like, if you get this pregnancy taken care of, like I can make this charge go away. Like, wouldn't it be in everyone's interest if you just have an abortion? Although I don't believe he says those words. So she goes to her empty holding area and has a moment where she cries, is lying on the floor and says, God help me. And then there's slightly heavenly music. And then Mary Kay Place comes in uh, (laughs) because she's one of a group of intense anti-abortion activists called the Baby Savers. And so she and her husband bail out Ruth and basically adopt her into their family and decide to basically use her as this figurehead in their crusade against abortion access because the fact that she is essentially being bribed with less of a punishment if she has an abortion is highly inflammatory and highly useful in this culture war. So she sort of unwittingly wanders in to something much bigger than her. That's the first act. And this is also based on a real case that happened in North Dakota. Yeah, so that's the first act. And this is where we get our first specimen of masculinity in this film, which maybe this is a good time to talk about, who is Kurtwood Smith. Everyone in this movie is perfectly cast. Oh my God, yes, 100%. Uh, So... Norm Stoney, I believe he's the like local leader of the Baby Savers or the the representative. But clearly, it seems to me that uh, his wife, played by Mary Kay Place, is kind of running the show. Yeah, I totally agree. Kurtwood Smith being perfectly cast. I think my first point of reference for him is that '70s show. Maybe because like I don't know, maybe that was the first thing I saw him in. Although I definitely saw him in RoboCop too, where he was a, a much different character. <laughs> also, Dead Poet Society played a dad in that too. So like he definitely has kind of like a a pretty consistent dad vibe. Very similar role, it feels like. Just this wildly repressed man who's capable of sniping all the people in a McDonald's one day. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. What I love about Kurtwood Smith is that I imagine he's capable of, of a director being like, could you do that thing you do where you're just incredibly creepy and it's hard to say why? Because like based on the consistency of him doing that, I imagine he's able to be like, yeah, sure. Or he's just like that all the time in a completely uncontrolled way. But I'm pretty sure it's it's acting. <laughs> yeah. So Norm is like a plain kind of dad they maybe we should talk about their family a little bit yeah. so they do they have a teenage daughter who clearly is sort of a rebel you know she's like sneaking out at night sleeping really late she kind of thinks her parents are a joke um and they have a son much younger he's probably like seven or eight and they refer to him as the miracle because apparently their older daughter she had a very bad birth and she was told that she wasn't going to be able to have another child and then they gave birth to matthew am i right in saying his name yeah, Matthew. Saying the whole name Matthew is such a Christian tell. I know. <laughs> so Matthew is their little miracle. And Norm, like, 
many portrayals of nice Christian dads also seems to have a little bit of a dark side. We see when the first night that Ruth is staying at their house and he unfolds what he describes as his old bachelor bed for her in their basement, like a fold out sofa. And she's lying on the bed talking about how tired she is and she just wants to go to sleep. And he just lies down next to her. And he's like, yeah, I remember I remember the sound of those springs, you know, and he's, she's just kind of like not even paying attention, but he's like checking out her bare skin. And it's a little bit of a creepy moment. Definitely. Yeah. I love how that was portrayed in particular, because like it does this thing that the rest of the movie does, which is it doesn't show anyone's overt creep. I mean, obviously that what he did in the way he did, it was creepy, but like it doesn't show anyone crossing a line overtly. It like indicates that these are people who will cross lines. And it like later does that with the baby savers in Mary Kay plays in particular, where I think the split is we see a scene in which they're singing or something along those lines or talking about like Jesus loving you. And then the, the very next scene is them yelling like baby killer at people. It like indicates everyone's menace in one way or another. But it never is just like this person is absolutely menacing. It's like this person has the capacity to be a creep and they're putting themselves out as being a creep. And like it creates this icky in betweenness with almost every character aside from Ruth, who is just mm. Ruth. Like Ruth is Ruth. Yeah. Ruth is out to survive and that is it. And if you leave your purse in the car with her, then she is going to take your cash and spend it on something to huff you, you got what you asked for by leaving your purse in the car with her yeah and with with everybody else there's like a how they present and then there is an indication of what else they're capable of yeah and oh no that's not that's not true i would say what is the name of the pro-choice vietnam vet oh harlan yeah i'd say harlan is the closest to ruth in what you see is what you get yeah harlan's fantastic Maybe we should talk about Harlan. <laughs> yeah, Harlan is this guy. He's in an organization called Vets for Pro-Choice. And there's also a binary to Harlan on the baby savers who's just like... This movie is like measure for measure. Everyone has a counterpart in the upside down. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And Harlan has a binary who is described as having seen a lot of killing in Vietnam and he doesn't want to see any more killing, which suggests, you know, he sees abortion as murder. But anyway, Harlan is like kind of almost any of my friends dads who were Vietnam vets from mm. like you know in this case Nebraska but in you know in my case like western Maine who's like gruff quote tells it like it is and you just got to deal with it has taken a side that is shaped in a large way by the injustice that Harlan in this case felt by way of his service in Vietnam we know that he received an agent orange payout which is how he has some money that he's going to offer Ruth and yeah I would say he's the closest other person to Ruth. He doesn't have two sides. He is seemingly wholly what he says that he is. Sarah, you said uh, you're you're keen on Harlan a little bit. Yes, Harlan is fantastic. Especially there's like a part where Ruth comes in and she's decided that she's going to do a little flirting with him because <laughs> it's become advantageous to her. She's realized that, you know, he's got some assets and I assume it's chili. He's eating something out of a small <laughs> pot. Um, and he is at one point like holding it up. You know, it's not that big of a container. And he just looks like a bear with a small trash can. He's also shirtless in this scene. Oh, yeah. for Yeah, yeah very shirtless. And Ruth is, she's very out of character. So he immediately picks up on what she's doing. He's like, are you hitting on me? 
Because if you're hitting on me, then you can just forget it. He's like, <laughs> I wasn't hitting on you, you know, and they both are just like, rare, you know. <laughs> the most repeated line, I think, in this movie is, fuck you, man. <laughs> <laughs> She just delivers that perfectly like three or four times in this movie. Oh my God, that's so good. That's such an amazing contrast to the kind of 11-year-oldness of her is that I really love the scenes where she's like kind of making herself up. Yes. I definitely remember these moments when I was like 11 or 12 years old, you know, going to a school dance or some sort of social event where you make yourself up like way too much. The hair up with the scrunchie and like all the blush, you know, that first night that she's at the Stoney's house and she like really does herself up just to have dinner with them on their back porch. She just looks completely ridiculous, like a, a kid who found their mom's makeup bag. That image of her, but then like completely switching and being like, fuck you, man, is like <laughs> the 25 year old coming out, you know, like <laughs> it's such an amazing contrast. Yeah. As Sarah was saying earlier, like everyone has in this movie, everyone has a shadow or like a binary. And I think that Harlan is Ruth's binary. I don't know how intentional that is, but like pro-choice side are presented as if they're obviously arguing for choice, but they're arguing driven in a lot of ways by their own neuroses and their own reasons for thinking that this cause is important to them. And the same thing for the pro-life camp as it's portrayed in this movie. And then there are even binaries in the heads of those camps who we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. It's implied that these, all these people need each other. There is a reason why there's a binary for everybody else is because like one side exists by way of the other, but Harlan in the same way that Ruth does eventually offers Ruth money because there's money put on the table by the pro-life folks that essentially says like, if she has her baby, she gets a certain amount of money, which we'll talk about because there's a great scene around that. And Harlan offers a counter amount of money And he's the only person who just outright says the reason he's motivated to do this. Like he got fucked Mm -hmm. in Vietnam. He got some money from a settlement and he doesn't like injustice and he likes personal freedom. And he feels like kind of the constraints of this situation are getting in the way of some sense of justice and some sense of personal freedom for Ruth. And everyone else suggests that she do the right thing or the wrong thing or whatever kind of for their reasons. And he's just like, this is my rationale for doing that in a way that's like makes him and her refreshing and literally no one else in this movie. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They're the only people who aren't playing three dimensional chess or who at least don't think they are. And also Harlan is the only one whose team, like let's just give money to Ruth for doing what she wanted to do originally, which was to have an abortion. Yeah, money for Ruth is a concept that not a lot of people are behind. You know, it's like, let's pay for Ruth to do what we want. But just money for Ruth seems to be one of the the solutions here. So can we talk about how the plot progresses? Because we have her being adopted by the Stonies. And then we have really a nice kind of soap opera twist reveal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Candace, what happens with Susie Kurtz, who was unrecognizable for a while in this movie? Yeah, also Kelly Preston. Yes, gorgeous. (laughs) So one of Gail's friends in The Baby Savers, played by Susie Kurtz, at one point, Ruth steals some cement glue from little miracle baby Matthew Mm -hmm. (laughs) to huff. And they get kind of in an altercation, uh, which is played so hilariously. (laughs) Yeah. I think she feels that she's talking to like someone 
roughly the same age as her. And of course, it's a small child. But yeah. weirdly, in a way, they are the same age and in a way they aren't. You know, it's like yeah. they are sort of like almost intellectually on the same level. But the way she's talking to him, like the language she's using is as though he's like the same guy who threw her out in the first scene of the movie, you know? <laughs> yes. But yeah, he finds her behind a building huffing his cement clue. And he's like, hey, isn't that my airplane glue? You know, and she's like, get the fuck out of here, man. You know, or whatever. She's, <laughs> and she's like physically pushing him away at one point. And that's when uh, Norm and Gail come running up and they're freaking out, obviously, because that's their little miracle. And, and Ruth is like attacking him. And, and that's where they show like their point of weakness is that they seem like they're out to protect Ruth at all costs. But then they... You know, clearly, like, she's a drug addict. It's not like bringing her into their home and, and feeding her a meal is is going to change that. But at that point, one of their friends in the Baby Savers says, why don't I take Ruth for a while so you, you don't have to take the whole burden? And, and they drive out to her house. It appears she kind of lives out in the country. And when they get there, she takes off her wig and she reveals that she's actually a spy from the local pro-choice faction. And of course... The really funny part about this is that Ruth seems to have no idea about this battle between the local pro-lifers or pro-choicers. And it's really funny because it's so clear that the language that these two groups use is like they really believe that everyone cares as much about their battle as they do. <laughs> Clearly Ruth like could not give two fucks about it. Like she does not. She has no idea what it even is. But her reaction, she thinks that she's been like kidnapped. Like she doesn't understand <laughs> Mm-hmm. like why she's taken her. And so Kelly Preston, who's Swoozie Kurtz's girlfriend, presumably comes out of their house and like, they're ready to welcome her there. And they're acting like they're saving her from the baby savers. But Ruth feels like, you know, she's like you said, Sarah, she's just constantly in survival mode. So she's like running mm. away from them. And at some point she like throws herself on the ground and is like kicking her legs up at them. And it's just such an amazing scene <laughs> of her just like kicking up at them like a wild animal. She does. It's like amazing physical comedy in this movie. She really does. She uses her whole body in every scene, I feel like. Laura Dern is so fucking, so fucking good in everything. Yeah. Mm. She's incredible. So anyway, they take her in and they have this group of pro-choice people who are, I'm not sure if they're all like living in this almost commune style house or if that's kind of their headquarters. At that point, they're trying to indoctrinate her about that she was kidnapped by the savers and that they want her to be able to get her abortion. And I think that she's she's hearing it as that, like, oh, okay, you're gonna you're gonna help me get this abortion that I want. But clearly, like, she's just becoming a pawn for them in their battles. And her previous experience with the pro-life people was her being like, I need an abortion. And they're like, okay, and taking her to one of these fake clinics that is pretending to be an abortion clinic, but is really a let let's force you to make sure we manipulate you into being too guilty to consider an abortion clinics. Yeah, that was a really great scene like that, you know, rewatching mm-hmm. it a couple times for this episode. I was really, really found myself loving that scene, especially when the nurse or the woman working there asks her, have you ever... The woman in the weird nurse's outfit who's doing like a weird horror movie escape room version of a nurse. Oh my God, she's terrifying. She is pretty terrifying. (laughs) That was amazing. (laughs) She looks like a David Lynch character. She does. (laughs) Which is very appropriate for Laura Dern. (laughs) 
she asks her, have you ever thought about what it means to have an abortion? And Ruth responds so rationally to this. She goes, it means I don't have to go to jail. I don't have to have another baby. And I can start getting my life together. Like she has been thinking about it. She's been using all of her energy to really be like, yep, this makes sense to me. Yeah. And I mean, clearly, like, I mean, we can talk about this at some point, but like, yes, it is a problem when a judge is telling you or insinuating that if you get an abortion or, quote, go to a doctor or visit the doctor, I think is what he said. Clearly, that's a problem. But like Ruth is thinking logically about Mm -hmm. like, well, you know. Maybe this is a good idea. I just I don't want to have another baby. She clearly does not want to have another baby, mm-hmm. even though she keeps returning to the drug use. Like you can also tell that she does want to stop. There are a lot of low moments for her in the film where she's clearly struggling with the drug use and she does not want to do it anymore. But like there's no resources for someone like Ruth to get out of this. And it's also interesting, like she's like you were saying, Sarah, she's in this small Nebraska town and everybody knows who she is. Like everybody knows her as like Ruth the Huffer. Mm hmm. And that scene is so significant to me where she's in that room because they essentially like try to dupe her out of having an abortion. She keeps trying to explain where she's coming from and then they keep pivoting. And it's this great scene that just like reminds me of being a person in 2020 or oh God, we're in 2021. Whatever fucking year it is. In this time slash being a teenager under the jurisdiction of parents generally, where she finally just has to say, what are you people fucking deaf? I want an abortion. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know that there's some other agenda and she's just going in saying exactly what she wants and is absolutely confounded and confused that there are people who are presenting reality as if it's one thing when for them it's actually something else Mm. like everyone in this movie is gaslighting Ruth 100% of the time and she's responding accordingly like she all the things I used to think were unlikable about Ruth and this plays into how we talked about uh, Claudia earlier when we talked about Magnolia Mm -hmm. all the things that I found unlikable about Ruth when I first saw this movie same things I found unlikable about Claudia and it just happens to be that it's a traumatized woman being gaslit regularly who is responding accordingly this reminds me I know I said this in our Magnolia episode also about Julianne Moore's performance Mm. it reminds me of Sharon Stone as Ginger in Casino which is my like one of my all-time Hall of Fame performances for demonstrating that particular thing that I think we don't necessarily see in film all that much the person who is screaming the loudest feels the least power and like they are screaming because they have nothing else to defend themselves with right Ruth, in one way or another, is just responding to the stimuli immediately in front of her. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so they show her a film, which does just kind of shell shock her enough into convincing her temporarily to go with the Stoney's agenda. Can we talk about the portrayal of the pro-choice people in this movie? I think it's amazing and hilarious. Yes. Having been to some number of Midwestern lesbian farmhouses, I do feel like I just got to say the production designer of this movie is Jane Ann Stewart and like brava. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So she is taken from the Baby Savers by Susie Hertz, whose character's name is Diane, and her friend who lives with her, which is what people said in 1996. (laughs) Also her sister sometimes. Yes, it's about sisterhood. (laughs) And they live in this, you know, I guess I can't even describe it. It's like trying to describe my own 
legs, you know, it's like, what does a, a lefty feminist enclave look like? There are bumper stickers on the walls. There are teas everywhere. There's like random fellow lefties showing up for granola in the morning. There's like a lot of sisterhood and and foot massage, <laughs> but also like if you're not going to think of your own life politically, then you're going to have a hard time communicating. <laughs> they have some clothes that they got in Guatemala, I believe. Right. Yes. And a Frida Kahlo top. Frida Kahlo shirt. Yeah. Yeah. It felt dated probably <laughs> when the movie already came out, but it was obviously parody. But like they're the very, very, very last second wave feminists mm -hmm. that are portrayed in the 90s, which is hilarious. <laughs> yes. When open feminism was very much a dirty word. Yes. Like I remember being a teenager in the 90s and my idea of feminism was that. And it was almost even like a parody of that. This movie is so fascinating because clearly the audience for this movie is progressive people, right? Honestly, I not even being contrarian, I don't know who the audience for this movie would have been in 1996. I think that's why no one saw this movie. Yeah. I mean, progressive people are the only people who could maybe take the joke, but like progressive people in like 1996, to Sarah's point, I don't think had a broad enough sense of irony to even get it. I mean, I guess when I say progressive people, I mean, like, this clearly was a movie that didn't get a whole lot of promotion. It probably was like a hit at film festivals. Yes. And the people who are going to film festivals are not like the Christian right. Right, right, right. <laughs> totally. I'm sure like Focus on the Family website has done a review about this movie. <laughs> the people watching this movie are, I'm assuming, liberal people because that's generally like the audience for independent cinema. Yeah. This movie, as we said, is making fun of literally everyone. So it's interesting that they like introduce the pro-lifers first because as the audience, you're like, yeah, these people are such a joke. But then like the pro-choices are introduced and you're like, oh, these people are such a joke too. And I need to kind of reckon with that. <laughs> the way people are universally flawed in this movie is that they are taking advantage of Ruth yes. in one way or another. They are using her to promote their side they are using her as a tool in a culture war. What I like about this movie is that, to me, it certainly highlights a lot of the absurdity of both pro-life activism and the concept of being pro-life generally, but also lampoons the fact that a lot of progressive or leftist causes involve and have involved in America, like picking up a random civilian and kind of ruining their life yes. in your attempt to turn what they are going through to send a message to which Ruth would reasonably reply, you want to send a message? I ain't no fucking telegram, bitch. <laughs> Ruth, Ruth, she's not as erudite, but like kind of sometimes has the same delivery as Freddy Krueger. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's the interesting thing about like the way it presents the sides is like at least with the stated rationale for why each side believes what they do in this movie is kind of presented clearly. It's like there's a group of people who think that abortion is killing babies and that's why it's not good. And then there's a group of people who think that it's interference on a woman's right. You know, it doesn't advocate for or make an argument against either of those sides really but it shows that people who adopt causes as their sole relationship with the world can be 
nuts. And it very much reminds of, you know, I spend however much time online all day. And I think that the audience for this movie in 1996 was people in this time. Yeah. I think that like this movie had to be discovered later. I think it was like really ahead of its time in a lot of ways because I see people that I agree with on a regular basis and I have to look at myself and the things that I get worked up about and ask, what is this really about? Mm-hmm. Is this about this cause? Because yes, it is. I mean, obviously, I there's a lot of things I agree with the ideology and the position of what in me is getting worked up about this? Mm-hmm. And like, is the way I'm getting being productive or am I like tapping into something that's tribal and wild? And we're seeing two tribes in this movie. And I think this is a great segue for talking about the heads of these tribes. There are two like tribal heads that are fucking glorious and and Sarah who are they (laughs) they are Blaine Gibbons played by Burt Reynolds and Jessica Weiss played by Tippi Hedren (laughs) they're so good they're amazing tell us about Blaine first because oh my god (laughs) yeah well basically Blaine comes in he is the head of the baby savers which I guess is like the national right to life or whatever analog in this world one of the big you know anti-abortion juggernauts and comes in and has a meeting with Norm Stoney which is a wonderful scene where Norm is essentially like kissing up to the big cheese and also trying to sort of, you know, defend his own space as like, he's the leader of the Nebraska baby savers, you know, like the big man's on his turf. There's a little bit of power struggling over that and over their dual attempts to handle the Ruth situation. And this happens when the baby savers declare a national emergency. And there's a fantastic montage of all of the baby savers streaming into town to all camp out around the farmhouse, the lesbian farmhouse, which only wants to be with other lesbian farmhouses where Ruth (laughs) is hiding out. And I also love this movie for being, to me, like such a pitch-perfect depiction of the specific moment of 90s media melees. Mm, Yes. Which I think To Die For also does a perfect job at. And Kurtwood Smith is in both of them. So Blaine is attended by a young man named Eric who looks to be about maybe 14 or 15 years old. He looks kind of like Will Wheaton. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) He has that 90s like sort of hair brushed over to the side. He's sort of effeminate looking. The story of Eric is that Blaine, when the Baby Savers was just sort of getting started, was at a pro-life rally. There was a woman trying to get into an abortion clinic and he talked her out of it. Later on, when Baby Savers got huge, he saw that woman again at another rally and they reconnected and she was with her son, Eric. And she said, this is my son, Eric. And clearly it was the son that he baby saved. (laughs) (laughs) Eric is now some version of a personal assistant to blame a boy slave. (laughs) Yeah, he's getting molested by this guy. That's what's implied, yeah. Yeah, totally. And there's so many interesting things that are happening there. One being that obviously Burt Reynolds a year later would be in Boogie Nights. There's a lot of overlap with this character in Alfred Molina's character in Boogie Nights who just like has (laughs) a boy around and like you never know why but you absolutely know why. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the case here with Burt Reynolds in this character. And what I like about what 
Burt Reynolds is as this character, as this guy. It does this really necessary thing where it shows that in a lot of situations, like the leadership of a cause is in a much different place than the people who are adhering to the cause. Like, I believe even though all these people are kind of like smarmy hypocrites in their little ways, like I believe that the baby savers are coming at this from an earnest place Mm -hmm. for their own reasons of zealotry. They're salt of the earth assholes. Yes, exactly. And there's even, they even kind of say, the Kirkwood Smith says to Burt Reynolds in this case, like, I know that it seems like we're backwoods idiots, but like we have the passion for whatever. They, they, They make the case that they are good people coming from a good place. And that's illustrated, like this guy, like many people who get into some position of power, based on being a leader of some zealous group is like in it for you know a private airplane and access to this boy and a lot of money and they're all in it for like kind of an earnest reason Chelsea Weber Smith said on Twitter today about the Capitol insurrection that there's something so American about the fact that like only the people who broke in are going to go to jail and not like the people who who were like the propagandist who drove the whole thing. Yeah. Fox and OAN and like Parler, whatever, like they're not going to go to jail, but these people are going to go to jail. And that's something that we're like watching happen here. Yeah. There's this guy who's the leadership and they're the people who are actually doing the work on the ground. And in theory, they're all coming from the same place but they're coming from much, much different places. Right. And then also to take it another level, then there's Ruth, Mm. who's the person who's actually struggling and actually having the problem. And I think the thing that struck me so much on this viewing is that both camps, like the pro-life and pro-choice, are like completely out of touch with the actual people, like making the decision of having an abortion or not. Like they don't understand at all. No one makes an effort to really understand what Ruth is going through and what her actual position is and why she is making that decision. Right. And that's how she talks about the money a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, she's essentially saying, she's like, are you going to give me money? Because like at the end of the day, like you said, Candace, when she rationalizes why she wants to get abortion is like, this is a thing that's going to get in the way of me getting my shit together. And everyone is talking about her position in what is ultimately this subjective argument about what is right and what is wrong. And she's just like, I just need some fucking money. I need to get stabilized. And obviously there are some arguments about what she might do with that money, how she might be affected by if she were to get her hands on that money. We know that she eventually does. There's a statement being made about how out of touch everyone is because at the end of the day, they're not doing this for her. They're doing it for themselves. And it's it's parody. Like I don't believe at the end of the day, like people who are making pro-choice arguments are inherently coming at it from this elevated and wild point of view. But it's making a general statement about, like I said earlier about myself, it might be wise for you to look at why you're involved with something and actually and actually audit the way you're approaching it. It illustrates the danger of people becoming pawns in political struggles which is that everyone loses track of the human, both figuratively and literally, in the end. (laughs) Yeah. Sarah, you said this was based on a case, and I know you've done a lot of research about not just abortion rights, Mm -hmm. but about movements towards fetal rights, etc. Can you talk about what this is grounded in and, and where it's at now? I mean, I think everything has gotten worse. And Candace, I would ask for your perspective on this as a woman who's engaged in this issue. Like, things seem worse. 
Do you think so? I mean, I don't know how engaged I was in the 90s. Right. Well, you were a teen. You were busy stealing pumpkin signs to take to pumpkins concerts. (laughs) (laughs) That is 100% true. I mean, I, I think even knowing that there has been really no improvement at all is, is enough to say that it's worse. Like, <sighs> yeah, there definitely hasn't been improvement. I mean, I guess there's things, there's small things like telemedicine didn't exist so much in the nineties. Like I think medical abortion is more common. There's more accessibility around that, but then like wherever it's possible, we see it getting blocked, you know, and then there's all kinds of other aggressive legislation. So I feel like any step forward, there've been a couple of steps back in response to it at least. Oh yeah. And I mean, I'm, you know, the recent uh, administration that we just came out of was certainly not helping the uh, abortion access issue. It's tied to like violent extremism, like with the exception of the Oklahoma city bombing, the other bombings that happened on American soil throughout the nineties were of abortion clinics. Mm -hmm. That was right-wing American terrorism. And that has grown. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I would say that right-wing American terrorism, white supremacist terrorism, I don't know how to call it except like, like, what do you call a thing when a guy is like abusive to his wife or girlfriend, maybe kills her and then goes and does a mass shooting? Like that's some, I would call that some kind, I mean, there's often some form of like patriarchal terrorism that that some mass shooters are really grasping at. Oh, yeah. I think that a lot of spree killing, like spree and mass killings that as we see them, especially like in the post-Columbine era, usually have some tie to someone who has a history with domestic abuse has a lot in common, even though it doesn't have the same ideological background. It has a lot in common with like the upswinging we're seeing in uh, right wing terrorism. Mm. Yeah, so that's definitely increased. And that, I think, has increasingly been a part of the world of abortion. I guess like my because I really tried to understand where people were coming from who were identifying themselves as pro-life. And what I found by talking to a lot of women was that I feel like I talked to a lot of like Gail Stoney types where I was like, you believe what you're selling. Like, I believe that you are acting in good faith. You're doing this because you care about babies. There are a lot of women organizing in the pro-life movement who have had abortions at one time and regretted them. And I do think that we should make more space for trying to understand that. And I love that there's, you know, a woman who has that story in this movie because it's just, this movie feels researched. Mm -hmm. I will say that it is like, it is very true to the world that I found when I, you know, I went to the the National Right to Life Convention in 2017 and and things like that. Um, And, you know, talking to people who are the kind of norms and blains of the movement now, like this, based on my very limited exposure to that world, this movie feels like what I encountered of it, Um, which is just like a lot of people walking around high on their own supply (laughs) and and a lot of people acting in good faith and also on the issue of, of having an abortion and regretting it. We, we do live in a world, I think, and in a country where if I get pregnant and if I really lack the ability to make a choice based on what I want for my life, the timing that would be ideal for me, because I'm like, I just literally can't have a baby. I can't even, not only can I not care for a child, but I can't do prenatal. I can't afford to let the baby leave my body because my country has made it impossible. And I think that if we are depriving people of the financial wherewithal to actually freely choose whether they want to have children, then like, 
arguably there isn't true choice under capitalism, which is an argument that you hear in pro-life circles. They do not use that language. (laughs) I did not hear an under capitalism, but like, that's a point I've heard made by pro-life women. And I'm like, yeah. And then their answer is like, if a woman can't truly choose, then like, no abortions for all. (laughs) And I'm a very pro-abortion person. I think that if you want to have an abortion, you should be able to have one. I think that late-term abortions should be available. There are, are so many areas that we could talk about, but ultimately, I just think that abortion is a human right. And I also feel that way because I, too, love babies. You know, a lot of people who have abortions have children. A lot of mothers who have children have abortions because they want to continue to care for their children who have already been born the way that they know those children need and feel that an additional child would compromise. And they're in a position to know that. Like that is one of the many reasons why abortion is necessary. And so it feels like the core reasons have remained the same as as what maybe we were seeing in the 90s, but also that like abortion did not used to be a political cause. When Roe v. Wade, when that opinion was released and people were sort of commenting on it and it was news that suddenly we had the Supreme Court abortion legislation, the Supreme Court justices were to some degree surprised by this. They were like, this really? Like people are, this is such a big story? I also think that abortion as an issue has been taken up by the right and used as a wedge to manipulate voters and to make the right what it has become in many ways. And I know that a lot of people voted for Trump in 2016, and a lot of them must have also voted for him in 2020, maybe not as many, who were single-issue voters on abortion. And that's the entire thing. I have close friends who I grew up with who many of them have Christian parents who voted for Trump specifically for that reason and no other reason. It's just shocking to me. I mean, I think it's the same ultimately, although it's like a little bit longer term of a fight with gun rights. Mm. The thing we're starting to have with abortion was with the rise of the alignment of the American right wing with the evangelical rise that happened around like the mid 70s. Mm. And then swept into the White House with Reagan. Right. And because in yeah, it was, that's exactly exactly what I was going to say is that the Bushes, I believe George H.W. Bush switched his position on abortion in order to run with Reagan. I think the Bushes were traditionally pro-choice before 79. Wow. Fascinating. I could be wrong. And oh, ideally, someone will correct me. And even though her actual actions don't seem to line up with this considering Kavanaugh. But I think the the last living serving pro-choice Republican is Susan Collins. Oh, really? Wow. Wow. She's an interesting person. She seems like a character in a Batman thing. She, I mean, right, yeah, right. <laughs> Mainers, as I am, have a lot of opinions on Susan Collins. She was friends with Betty Ford. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that's not like I'm not implying that she has a drinking problem. I mean, Betty Ford was a pro-choice Republican. And I always like to bring that up because it just shows that like that was a thing that used to exist and not even in a way that was noteworthy. Yeah. You know, the thing that has shifted with this movie that I actually that made the Capitol insurrection made me think of in a in a big way is there's this great side scene. It's a, it's almost throwaway where the Burt Reynolds character is engaged by a member of the press. His question is, you're a network affiliate, right? 
which means like to anyone who wasn't conscious in the 90s, you would care about that because it meant that like the press, this this member of the press actually had some prestige and you would be on one of the network, the, the one of the networks. You'd be seen by a lot of people. And so obviously vanity is important to this person. And that's a part of maybe why he's driven to being a leader to this. And the reason I brought up the, the insurrection is uh, any picture I've seen of all these people in the Capitol, 90% of them are have a phone up and they're live streaming their participation in the event. They are all both the foot soldiers of the movement and the Burt Reynolds character mm. in the movement. Or even better, they're the cameramen. They're the Blair Witch guys. They're they're Joshua Leonard. (laughs) There's been this interesting merger where what was suggested was going to happen with like the rise of blogs in the early 2000s. The gatekeepers would fall and everyone could be a part of the media. And a lot of good has certainly come from that. But also what has happened (laughs) is you now have activists that are also pundits. And so there's a merger of the Kirkwood Smith character and the Burt Reynolds character in our, in our modern activist. Mm. And there's a lot of interesting good that comes from that. And a lot of (laughs) certain real bad, especially on the right right now. Yeah. Candice, I asked this question to Sarah when I was watching the movie or rewatching the movie for the first time. And I don't know how familiar you are with Alexander Payne's other movies, but I'm curious if you think that Alexander Payne likes sex. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while since I've seen any of it. I mean, I like I was going through a list of his movies and like I've definitely seen Election and I saw Sideways at one point. But I think I feel like it's been too long for me. Mm. to comment on it. I didn't put it together until watching it this time. And like Sarah said, I mean, the one bout of sex that's portrayed in this movie is survival sex. The only other time it's referenced is it's not sex. It's Ruth referring to getting molested. And I rewound all of the Alexander Payne movies I could think of in my head. And I couldn't find one positive association with sex with this with election with sideways with about schmidt with nebraska which i think is a wholly sexless movie thankfully because it's just bruce dern yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he does great work with the derns yes i'd be curious to know what his relationship with sex is because it seems to always be a motivator of chaos mm. or i haven't seen it be used to bring people closer together i will say there's a line when Ruth is uh, is appearing before this judge who's scolding her, he mentions that she was declared unfit for all four of her children. And she's like, nah, uh-uh. I was only unfit for uh, two of them. <laughs> she, yeah, the, the first one was adopted. The second one, I think, like she doesn't even remember. I, like definitely the first time I saw it, I felt like the Ruth character is such a farce. Like it's, it's just like, making fun of her the whole time but watching it now I I don't know I'm just sad for her I'm I felt very sad for Ruth a lot of this time she is a heroine and and an empowering character in that she does like she knows what she wants and she's just like taking the money and running like literally but you know yeah so Norm fundraises $15,000 from the local baby savers and generates one of those huge publishers clearinghouse checks that was very popular in the 90s and goes on the news and says that they have $15,000 for her that they will deliver to her upon the birth of her child. And so she, of course, is watching the news from the 
pro-choice headquarters. And she's like, $15,000! And she starts like <laughs> jumping up and screaming. And it's, it's this hilarious scene because there's all these pro-lifers like camped out outside the lesbian farmhouse and the news is there. And then all of a sudden you see her... <laughs> Just run out onto the porch screaming, like jumping for joy that she's offered this money. After that, as you explained, Sarah, is when Harlan offers her $15,000 as well, just to even the playing field. So she's back at square one. She's allowed to make whatever choice she wants to make. And she decides she does want to get an abortion. So Harlan arranges to leave this bag of $15,000 at the abortion clinic so she can take it when she leaves. And she finally gets dropped off there after going in the private helicopter ride. Jessica Weiss whisks her off to the abortion clinic in her private helicopter. Who I feel like is like the Sarah Weddington proxy here because she has like beautiful hair and she's a lady. You know, she's like the queen of abortions. (laughs) Oh, we should also mention this has not come up at all. Ruth actually has a miscarriage. Right. She doesn't tell anyone. So that happens because... Uh, Well, I don't know if it's because, but she does get wasted on a bottle of whiskey that she finds under a bed. She falls down the stairs, too. She does. Oh, right. She falls down the stairs. She's drunk. They tell her to sleep it off. So she takes a nap. And when she wakes up, she discovers that she's bleeding. And so it's presumed that she has had a miscarriage. And she sits like Whistler's mother in that chair. She does. She sits like Whistler's mother in this rocking chair. And she's having she seems very affected by it for the first time in this movie, she's like deeply affected by her situation. Well, it's like that and the moment where she's in lockup and they're both moments where she's freshly showered, which like, I feel like this is a nice, and I say this as something I love about it because I think subtlety is for French people. I think this is an amazing like leitmotifs for babies movie. The way Ruth puts on makeup, wears the clothes of the people she's with, the food that is served to her by these different people. And the fact that her name is Ruth, that's the book of Whither Thou Goest, I Will Go, and Thy People Will Be My People, and Thy God, My God, which I know because of fried green tomatoes. (laughs) (laughs) She has these two moments where, you know, and I find her lovable in every scene, but this is like her, I think, maybe appealing to someone who needs to see her be more reflective or to know kind of what is she like when she's not reacting to the constant threat of other people. You know, you can ascribe all kinds of reasons to why she's sad and Having maybe the space and the quiet to feel how she feels and not be constantly defending herself against potential threats. Well, in the specific mechanics of the scene that I think are interesting on top of that, and I I agree with everything you just said, is it creates this moment where she's in the bed. She realizes that she's had a miscarriage, which means that if anyone finds out the money's not on the table anymore. This is the only option where she gets no money. Like, have a baby get money, have an abortion get money. Like, this is the only no money option that she's managed to screw up and end up in. Swoozie Kurtz, who's the head of the pro-choice group, comes into the room to get Ruth to finally go and get the abortion. And Ruth says to her, I need to tell you something important. And Swoozie Kurtz is ready to hear her. And they're ready to have a moment in which... Ruth has something to say and one of the advocates is ready to hear it on like a human level. And then she's interrupted 
by her walkie-talkie where the group is saying, okay, now it's time for us to go. Again, it like brings us back to this situation where the movement is bigger than like the one-on-one connection. And I thought that that was really special moment because like Ruth finally has Mm. something to say Mm -hmm. and she finally has some feelings about the situation and she's ready to connect and it just is not possible because of the dynamics of the moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a really sad moment. We talked earlier about how she Ruth is so childlike, and this very much felt like the experience of a child whose parents are recently divorced, mm. and they're pulled back and forth between both parents, but the bigger issue is the divorce and the parents fighting and have completely lost touch with the child's needs. Totally. And if you guys notice, there's even a moment when Swoozie Kurtz, she has a speech like Kurtwood Smith's speech earlier. And it's totally a mom speech. She's like, I have spent nine months pretending to be someone I'm not with people I hate. And we have been up for three days setting up this abortion for you. This is the gratitude you show me. Like, it's just, it's everything is parental. Right. And there's even that moment when, when they call the police to the lesbian farmhouse and they're asking her like, Ruth, are you here against your will? And she says no. And they're like, do you want to stay here? And there's it, it's like that moment when parents are asking the kid, who do you want to live with? Yeah. She's making that decision in the moment and she's sort of like reciting the things that they told her. I think she says something like it's a, a woman's right to pick or something yes, yeah. like that. God, her speech is so good. <laughs> it reminds me so much of like a kid trying to remember like what their parent told them they should say in that moment. It's heart wrenching <laughs> Yeah. And it's heart wrenching because we just have this snapshot of Ruth right now where she's in the middle of this and she's living on everyone else's terms and kind of stuck in living on everyone else's terms. This is just one chapter of that. We are left to assume, I think, that up to this point, you know, we see it in the introduction of her. She's living on this guy's terms who she's fucking as a, as a means of like hoping that she'll have a place to stay. And even that doesn't work out. We leave her in this dark note because of how the movie ends, but it's also kind of a light note because I think we see the first and only time in Ruth's life that she just does something on her terms, even though it's seemingly impossible. What, what does she do, Candace? So she gets to the abortion clinic And she makes sure that the bag of money is there. She gets it. They bring her into the back office. They're they're taking her blood and they're going to basically check that she's pregnant. And so she has to use the bathroom and she's trying to escape with this bag of money. $15,000. And the look on her face, actually, like the camera is the point of view of the camera is inside the bag of money. And when she opens it up, like it's such an amazing look on her face. I think it's like hallelujah playing in the background. But She has to escape from this bathroom out of this tiny little window. And there's, you know, someone standing outside because there's so much security on the building because there's all these pro-life people showing up to try and prevent her from having an abortion. And so she takes the top off the toilet and drops it out of the window and knocks this guy out so she can climb out the window with her bag of money. And she's trying to escape off the premises without being seen. Because there's this huge crowd of people out front between the baby savers and the pro-choice group. And they're all screaming and chanting and yelling. And she's trying to get out of here. And there's not really any way out. And she just ends up walking right past them away. And it's it's just such a beautiful visual metaphor for the entire movie is that they're not paying attention to her at all. She's completely invisible. Like mm-hmm. She has nothing to do with this battle. And she's able to just 
casually walk right past everyone they don't even notice and then she just kind of scurries off with this bag of money and like in a way you're right it is like empowering because she was able to make this choice on her own terms she had to do it like completely in secret in order to do it it makes my heart feel like a balloon animal because like (laughs) and there's this one moment the sort of pro-life vigil people who've been camped out all around the house are singing it's to the tune of something. Don't give up on baby, baby time. Yeah. Is that I've been working on the railroad? Wow. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> because Ruth, when she went to this crisis pregnancy center, they're like, do you want a little boy or a little girl? And she's like, a girl would be nice. And then like she mentions that she likes the name Tanya. And on the day that she escapes, you can hear, you know, the crowd all around the clinic protesting, chanting, save baby Tanya, save baby Tanya. And there's like this moment when that chant gets louder because she's like walking past sort of the central place in the crowd where that's loudest. And also the music kind of catches. It feels like musically your heart's being sort of pricked at and like the moment that you're seeing there also just feels like, right, like to me, the tragedy of this and the tragedy of a lot of pro-life culture and activism is like can we focus on Ruth who like is here and like has had like a really rough life and needs some help for her it would be nice if we deemed her worthy of assistance for reasons aside from the fact that she has this imaginary baby inside of her that you're all obsessed with yeah and it feels like she's someone who needed to be loved without agenda and that has been impossible in this world and so the next best thing is a bag full of cash So normally we would ask X is the father or the dad in this movie. Who is the daddy? It's a little hard to say who the dad is because it's everyone is playing sort of a a weird patriarchal role, whether or not they they mean to. Who would we say is the daddy? I mean, it's got to be Harlan because he's the only one who's acting in good faith. He is the person here who alongside Ruth what you see is what you get. And I think just that lack of an agenda is the most rare form of care in this movie. I mean, there is like, he's supporting the pro-choice agenda. He's not without agenda, but he understands where she's coming from. What do you say, Candace? I I second that. I agree about Harlan. I I mean, but Ruth is also a daddy in this. Yeah. She takes the money and runs. That's a dad move. (laughs) She takes the money and runs like literally. Yeah. We don't have to see a relationship (laughs) and know that it goes on forever for the rest of time to be heartened by it. It might just be like a short term relationship that is important or good. And, you know, we don't need to think that like Ruth goes off and invests the money and becomes like a CFO of a company in 10 years. Mm. Like It's just nice to know she had that opportunity and she took it. Hey, just final shout out to Laura Dern, man. She is <laughs> so incredible. Yeah. She's so good. Alexander Payne was gloriously lucky to have her in this role. Yeah. yeah. And as much as Laura Dern would have to love her, because this feels like an incredibly compassionate performance. We have like every necessary ingredient for knowing why this woman has struggled and suffered as much as she has and why she goes from zero to 90 the way that she does. Awesome. Candace, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Thank you, guys. It's been fantastic. Come back again sometime. Our door is always open. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Why Our Dads. Thank you so much to Candace Hopper for joining us. 
in this week's discussion of Citizen Ruth. And thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, our wonderful producer, for making the show sound excellent. Uh, you can hear Carolyn's EP, Tear Things Apart, at carolynkendrick.com. Thanks so much to DJ Fresh Lesh for the beats. You can find us on social media uh, at Twitter and Instagram. Finally, if you feel so inclined, you can support Wire Dads by way of Patreon. We feature bonus episodes just about weekly. There will be one later this week. If you're able to support financially, we appreciate it. If you are not, we understand. These are weird times all around, especially financially. We are just glad that you are here. Next week, we will be talking about Fargo. So catch up on Fargo if you haven't yet. All right, everybody, that is it for now. We, uh, we look forward to talking with you all soon. Thanks for joining us.